Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. And on this week's bonus episode, I want to try to clarify some of the points that I was trying to make, and I didn't articulate them very well, with a panel of guests that I had uh, on the podcast this week. So I was trying to take the the panel through a thought experiment on this COVID-19 stuff. And, and again, um, to be clear, I am not saying I, because first I don't, I'm not an expert in obviously infectious disease, nor am I um, uh, know or understand this stuff enough to try to go against the CDC recommendations about urgent and emergent care. But one of the things that I thought about and I've been thinking about a lot and I've been getting tons and tons of questions on is this idea of what is essential care? What is routine care? So the, the CDC guidelines say uh, in order to preserve um, something like in order to preserve the uh, urgent and emergent situations and the need and the safety of healthcare workers, et cetera, et cetera, we, um, we remind you that you should uh, suspend or postpone routine dental and eye care services. And so one of the thought things that I've, one of the things that I've thought about in this a lot is that what is routine eye care services or what are routine eye care services? And if I were to ask you two weeks ago across the country or three weeks ago across the country, ask doctors all over the country, what is routine eye care? The vast majority of them would have said it's a patient that needs new glasses and contact lenses. And there wouldn't be a lot of debate. Now, there would be some questions on whether or not a patient that has cataracts uh, should be billed as routine to a vision plan, for, for example. But there wouldn't be a lot of, uh, of consternation or argument about whether or not that patient was, in fact, a routine patient. Where the confusion really comes in is the preamble of the reminder from the CDC was that uh, it was for uh, to preserve your resources for urgent and emergent care. And so that leads to a lot of, of uncertainty, and um, it, it certainly has led to a lot of uncertainty and a lot of conversations and discussions. And so, as I've said in the prior podcast, um, we have pretty much gone down the intent of what we think they probably mean, um, which is we're basically only seeing patients who are urgent or emergent. But that also begs the question of, does the CDC really know what routine eye care is? Do they really know what what routine eye care? Or do they just think it's prescribing new glasses and contact lenses? Because in our practice, we see a lot of ocular disease. It's almost exclusively what we see. And so is it routine to see a routine glaucoma patient, for example? There are some that, you know, may have uncontrolled glaucoma. They're certainly not routine. Uh, and, th and that's, we've tried to implement that in our practice from the intent of what we think the CDC has done in a good faith effort to try to uh, distance ourselves. But one of the things that keeps coming back, and I was trying to have the panelists go through this thought experiment of, was let's say that the response that we're having right now with extreme social distancing and um, and stay in place, you know, stay at home types of, of mandates that are going on, is that going to, or, or could it be the case that it doesn't matter a whole lot what we do as, as far as maybe some, some generalized 
things in terms of social distancing and washing hands and, and staying clean, all those sorts of things, uh, versus some of these more radical attempts to quell the disease. And, uh, you know, what is really hard, I think, for people to wrap their minds around is, is this idea that um, perhaps the way we're managing this may not be the best way or the most necessary way. And what I'm trying to, I guess what I was trying to ask them is, uh, are we in fact like Italy? The, all the, all the um, reports that you see in, in kind of the general media is that we're going to follow the course of Italy because if we look at the trajectory of, of infection rates, um, we're just on the same path as they are. And I, again, I don't know enough. What, what I question is that we very quickly dismiss the ways that were different from Italy and in those models, we very quickly adapt or uh, accept the ways that were similar to Italy. So, for example, Italy has a, a lot uh, older population than we have. They're much more densely populated than, than the majority of, of this country. Um, they tend to have a higher smoking rate than, than they do in this country. And, and when we point those differences out, we commonly will, even I will commonly say, yeah, yeah, those are differences. And, and so, but it's not that big of a deal. But how do we know that it isn't that big of a deal? How do we know that uh, some of the societal differences of how they greet each other aren't that big of a deal? They may in fact be, but, but we can't know that. And so I wanted to point out a couple things about the, the two different sides. And so since I've had that conversation last Saturday with the, the panel of, of guests that I had on, I've seen now a couple other really solid resources um, and, and people with backgrounds um, in medicine that deal with this type of stuff all the time, sort of asking the same questions. And so I wanna, I wanna take a, a moment to juxtapose a few of these different recent articles that are coming out. And so one is on NBC. And this, this article takes the position that the coronavirus outbreak will be in fact as bad in the United States as it is in Italy. And, um, and it, it takes into account the idea that what we're doing with extreme social distancing and extreme measures to kind of shut things down and um, and pull back that that it, it is required. And so uh, I'll just read a few pieces from this article. This is from the NBC and was released today, uh, well, on March 26th. So uh, assistant nursing manager at a New York City hospital who told his family he believed he had contracted the coronavirus after being exposed at work died Tuesday evening, his sister told NBC News. The death of uh Coosh Jordan Kelly, I'm sure I'm butchering his name, 48, was confirmed by Mount Sinai Hospital. It comes amid an escalating crisis in New York, which hospitals are faced with surging numbers of coronavirus patients and shortages of, of crucial medical equipment and protective gear for staffers. It goes on to say, quote, there are only going to be more. Uh, he's not the only one with asthma. He's not the only one with conditions who are going to work every day helping and fighting for people. And, uh, and then it, it continues, the crisis is straining the resources of all New York area hospitals. And while we do and have had enough protective equipment for our staff, we will all need more in the weeks ahead. The spokesperson said, the crisis is only growing and it's essential that we not only have the right equipment, but that we come together and help support one another. Today we lost another hero, the statement added, and colleague confirmed that Kelly had been working directly with coronavirus patients at Mount Sinai West Medical Center. He is moving them, transporting them, going to their homes. 
um, and he has to remain anonymous for fear of jeopardizing that patient, that person's job. He used to do whatever needed to do to decongest the emergency department or help nurses or patients who would sit in the hallway and exposing others. So I think as I read this article, the, the title of the article is, There's Only Going to Be More, New York City Nurse Dies After Contracting Coronavirus. And of course, um, he had suffered from severe asthma. And, um, and so, you know, again, we, we say, well, there's going to be more, there's going to be more, there's going to be more. Um, our projections are right. We are just like Italy. And yet, um, is that really the case? And so what I wanted to do was um, just point out a, a couple, I, th- I think there was quite a few very good articles that were looking at the data in different light. And so one of these was from the Wall Street Journal. It, it is, of course, an opinion piece. It is by two physicians um, who are professors of medicine at Stanford. And, um, and so I'm going to read some pieces from this article. The, the opinion is, uh, the piece is called, Is the Coronavirus as Deadly as They Say? And, and so this is, comes from March 24th, um, so just a couple days ago. And it says, If it's true that the coronavirus would kill millions without shelter-in-place orders and quarantines, then extraordinary measures being carried out in cities and states around the country are surely justified. But if there's little evidence to confirm, but there is little evidence to confirm that premise and projections of the death toll could possibly be orders of magnitude too high. Fear of COVID-19 is based on high estimated cases of fatality. Two to 4% of patients with confirmed COVID-19 have died, according to the World Health Organization. So if 100 million Americans ultimately get the disease, then 2 million to 4 million could die. That's the numbers, again, that we've been, um, that the UK studies that and projections that Drew and I on last week's uh, podcast were discussing. And so um, if, if that's the case, we would expect two to 4 million people. I've seen it. I've seen some articles that have estimated 10 million people in the country would die. And so if we believe that these estimates, uh, these two physicians believe those estimates are deeply flawed and um, they think the true fatality rate uh, is the, uh, again, we need to recall that the true fatality rate is the proportion of infected people who die, not the death from just identified positive cases. And that's the real hard part here is that we can't know who is infected because we're only testing patients right now who are significantly ill or who have been exposed in, in some way or the other. We can't know that the numbers of people who are asymptomatic with their disease who, um, who never seek care and they never get tested. And we also can't know until recently, I believe, um, those who have antibodies against the disease. So if you have had an infection in the past, um, you could be walking around with the disease or with antibodies to disease, providing immunity to others, but not even know it. And that's the real challenge. And so this article goes on to say, the latter rate is misleading because of selection bias and testing. The degree of bias is uncertain because available data are limited, but it could make the difference between an epidemic that kills 20,000 and one that kills 2 million. If the number of actual infections is much larger than the number of cases, orders of magnitude larger, then the true fatality rate is much lower as well. And that's not only plausible, but likely based on what we know so far. And that's the, the uh, idea that I was trying to convey in, in, albeit not very well, in the last podcast to the, uh, the panelists that were there. If we go on and, and read further, the, uh, this article 
states the population from tri- China, Iceland, Italy, and the United States provide a relevant provide relevant evidence. On January 31st, countries sent planes to evacuate citizens from Wuhan, China. When the planes landed, passengers were tested for COVID-19 and quarantined. After 14 days, the percentage of of patients who tested positive was 0.09%. And so you can assume then that this is the prevalence of the uh, disease in greater Wuhan area on January 31st. Uh, In that population then of about 20 million, Greater Wuhan had 178,000 infections, which was would be 30-fold more than the number of reported cases at that time. And the fatality rate at that point would be about 10 times lower than the estimates based on those reported cases. So, and so again, the idea here is that when we look at data for, um, if you assume that those evacuees were part of the general population of Wuhan, China, and when we tested them, only 0.9% of those evacuees tested positive, and you extrapolate that 0.9% positivity rate to the entire population of Wuhan, China, then on January 31st, that would mean that there were 178,000 people in Wuhan that had those infections, which is significantly more than the number of reported cases, again, because those reported cases were being uh, measured against people who actually had infections that were symptomatic and then tested. And so um, if we look at Italy, uh, the town of Vo near the uh, provincial capital of Pada, on March 6th, there were 3,300 people who were tested and 90 of them were positive. And so that's a prevalence of 2.7%. And if we apply that to the prevalence of the entire province, which is almost a million, it's about 955,000 people, that would mean that they had uh, 198 reported cases at the time, but it would suggest that if we look at that small sample of 3,300 people and 93 were positive, they should have actually had a uh, prevalence rate of 26,000 or 26,000 infections per that 955,000, of which only 200 were reported cases. So that's more than 130-fold the number of actual reported cases. And since Italy's case fatality rate is 8% of the estimate using the reported cases, the cases that we've identified positively via testing, the real fatality rate could really be lower uh, and and really closer to 0.06%. If we look at Iceland, the uh, Decode Genetics is working with the government to perform widespread testing and a sample of nearly 2,000 entirely asymptomatic people Researchers estimated disease prevalence was just over 1%. Iceland's first case was reported on February 28th, weeks behind the United States, and it's plausible that the proportion of the United States population that has been infected is double, triple, or even 10 times as high as the estimates from Iceland. But that also implies a dramatically lower fatality rate. And so um, the best evidence that we have in the United States comes from the NBA. And so if you look at uh, the NBA between March 11th and 19th, there's a substantial number of NBA players that received testing. And by March 19th, 10 out of the 450 rostered players were positive. And so again, not everyone was tested in that study, but or during that uh, that time, but it represents the uh, lower bound on the prevalence of about 2.2% of those NBA basketball players were positive. And of course, the NBA isn't representative of the entire population, 
But if we extend that lower bound assumption to cities with NBA teams, which is about a population of about 45 million, we get at least 990,000 infections in the United States from those big, large cities where the NBA teams play. And that would have been on March 19th. The uh, So if we compare that 990,000 infections using the NBA rates because they are in larger cities and we extrapolate that to those larger city populations, we would expect almost a million infections. However, the number of cases reported on March 19th in the United States was 13,677, which is 72 fold less than uh, than what we would estimate based on some of these other um, prevalence data analysis. So these, these numbers imply that the fatality rate from COVID-19 are orders of magnitude smaller than they appear. And so how do we recognize reconcile these with other epidemiological studies? And, and I think the, the um, article goes on to say that it doesn't the test used to identify cases doesn't catch people who were infected and recovered. So that was my first point. And second, the test rates are woefully low for a long time. So you're not testing enough people and they're typically reserved for severely ill. Again, that was my second point. Um, and together these facts imply that confirmed cases are likely orders of magnitude less than the true number of infections. And epidemiological modelers haven't adequately adapted their estimates to account for these factors. And so again, I think um, if you actually ex extrapolate those rates, it could be significantly lower. There could be the case that this article goes on to, to talk about the fact that uh, COVID-19 has probably been our, in our population for a lot longer and has been more prevalent in our population um, than what we, what we think. And so is it the case that we have a significant number of people that have been sick with the disease um, and are actually protective against the disease. And the whole crux of all of this is, is uh, I, again, I want to be very clear, is the disease, is the management of the disease, is what we're doing to our economy putting us at a potential hole to be able to care for diseases and conditions that in the, in the past or, you know, three weeks ago, we could easily manage within our systems and in a year, because our economy is so crippled, we can't, in fact, uh, manage those diseases or those other threats that are going to come in 6, 12, 18 months. If we, if we kind of wrap this up with a bowl, uh, with, a, with a bow, the, um, the article ends by saying, the epidemic started in China sometime in November or December. The first confirmed U.S. cases included a person who traveled from Wuhan on January 15th. And it is likely that the virus entered before that. Tens of thousands of people traveled from Wuhan to the United States in December. Existing evidence <clears throat> suggests that the virus is highly transmissible and that the number of infections doubles roughly every three days. An epidemic seed on January 1st implies that the March 9th, about 6 million people in the United States would have been infected. As of March 23rd, according to the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, there were 499 COVID-19 deaths in the United States. If our, if, if, our semi, if, if our surmise of 6 million cases is accurate, that's a mortality rate of 0.01%, assuming a two-week lag between infection and death. This is one-tenth of the flu mortality rate of 0.1%. Such a low death rate would be cause for optimism, but it doesn't make these, these authors uh, optimistic entirely. Uh, it doesn't make that 
COVID COVID nineteen is a non issue. The daily reports for, from Italy and across the United States show that real struggles and overwhelmed healthcare systems. But twenty thousand or forty thousand death epidemic is far less severe than one that kills two million. And given the enormous consequences and decisions around COVID nineteen responses, getting clear data to guide decisions is now critical. We don't know if the true infection rate in the United States antibody testing of representative samples to measure disease prevalence um, is crucial. And so nearly every day, new lab gets approval for that antibody testing. So the population testing using this technology is now feasible. And the authors finish by saying, if we're right about the limited scale of the epidemic, then measures focused on older populations and hospitals are sensible. Elective procedures will need to be rescheduled. Hospital resources will need to be reallocated to care for critically ill patients. Triage will need to be improved. And policymakers will need to focus on reducing risk for older adults and people with underlying medical conditions. Universal quarantine may not be the worst it costs. It imposes on the economy, community, individual mental and physical health. We should undertake immediate steps to evaluate the empirical basis of our current lockdowns. And that is essentially what I was trying to say, uh, although not quite as eloquent, eloquent um, is, is that just the idea of how do we know that what we're doing isn't going to create more harm than it is good. And so I don't know the answer to that. I think what we're seeing now as I, as I read through this is Thursday that I'm recording this, I've seen more and more um, publications that are uh, utilizing this data and questioning what's going on. Um, I hope that the people that are guiding us down this path um, continue to gui guide us in the right way. And I think at this point, all I can do is continue to question, think through the, the data, think what, I, what seems most rational to me. But the bottom line is the way I run my practice and the way many of us are going to run our practices is based on the large scale guidance of our national associations, our national organizations like the CDC and try to interpret those the, to the best of our ability for the sake of our patients. And it certainly makes me hope that, um, that they have considered all of this data and, um, and thoroughly evaluated the impacts of it. And so with that, if you found this episode valuable, and even if you didn't, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and share it with your friends. At iCode Media, we believe in advancing the optometric profession by diving deep into eye care topics and providing the actionable steps for our listeners and subscribers. Have a great week. Talk to you soon.